Good morning. My name is Jesse Raymer, and I'm the small groups, outreach, and seniors pastor, and whatever else they decide to tack on. This morning, I want to be talking to you about making good and wise decisions for our big decisions in life. And just so that you know, this sermon is perfectly directed towards myself first, because in the last couple of months, my wife and I have bought our first home, and we've also welcomed into our lives our first daughter, Evelyn. And so we've had huge life decisions going on. She's a cutie, isn't she? So if I start doing any gibberish this morning, you'll know that it's from the sleep deprivation. A few weeks ago, Larry started one of his sermons, and, and he started to describe how we are inundated every single day with hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions. Though 99% of our decisions don't necessarily make a huge impact on our lives. Whether I stop at the Conoco or the Phillips 66 on my way home from work probably isn't going to have a huge effect on my life. But all of us realize that, that there are some of those decisions, that 1% that of decisions that can have a huge effect on our lives. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Those questions such as, should I go to college? What should I major in when I'm in college? Where should I go to college? Who should I marry? Where should we live? What job offer should I accept? Should I break out and start my own business, or should I just change vocations? These are the questions and decisions that we wrestle over, and they're the ones that we lie awake on our beds at night contemplating. It's not the decisions that we make in the grocery store that keep us awake at night. And so this morning, we want to look at what does the Bible have to say about making those big life decisions. Now, Proverbs affirms that we have free will and that our choices actually matter. Proverbs 6, 10, and 11 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. And Proverbs 21, 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. From a strictly naturalistic worldview that, that completely rules out anything supernatural, it is widely debated of whether or not we actually have free will. Many neuroscientists and psychologists would argue that free will is just an illusion, that all of our decisions are just a matter of our biochemical makeup. Dr. Seth Schwartz says in psychologytoday.com, there is no consensus within psychology as to whether we really do have free will, although much of our field seems to assume that we don't. New threats to the possibility of free will have come from fields such as neuroscience and genetics. Many neuroscientists armed with functional magnetic resonance imaging and other brain scanning tools argue that now we can peer into the brain and we can see that there is no agent there making choices. And so from this strictly naturalistic worldview, they can't see 
a reason for having free will. And so it leads to a very deterministic and fatalistic worldview. They would argue that, that if they had all of the correct data and the right way of analyzing da that data, that they could tell you every single decision that you'll ever make in the rest of your life. But in contrast to this strictly naturalistic worldview, the book of Proverbs and the entire book of the Bible argues that we do, in fact, have free will. Proverbs is much written from a father to a son, and the father is trying to tell the son, here's how you live wisely, and here's how you, how, here's how you avoid living foolishly. And so make the decision to live wisely. And so implicit in that is that we actually do have free will. And so the Bible argues that we have free will, and not only that, it argues that our choices actually matter in our lives. For example, in that earlier Proverbs, it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands in poverty will come upon you. So if you sleep through the workday regularly, you will become poor. And also, if, if you make good plans and you work it tirelessly, you're most likely to succeed. And now, the book of Proverbs and, and the genre that it is, it, it's, it's a book of general principles. It's not a book of promises and guarantees. In each individual proverb, it's, it's so short that I can't really deal with the exceptions to the rule. And Proverbs is also coming from a place of, of if everything else is equal in life, that if you work hard, you will get ahead, and, and if you don't, that you won't. And if you make good, wise plans, that you'll succeed. And if you're just flying by the seat of your pants, you probably will have a hard time. But life does have exceptions, doesn't it? And life isn't always fair. But at the end of the day, we still need to make the best and wisest decision we possibly can. We're still faced with those decisions. And so how do we make those decisions? We as Christians, we acknowledge that God is far bigger than we are and he has far more knowledge than we do. And so we wisely turn to God for wisdom. But most of us have been taught that God has a very specific plan for our life and he has a specific will for each one of our decisions. And then if we hit the bullseye on each one of our decisions, the better our life is going to be. But the further from the bullseye that we stray, the worse and more chaotic our life's going to be. And one example is, of this is, is most of us have been taught that, that God has that one person in mind whom he wants you to marry. And if you marry that person, marriage is going to be easy and it's going to be great. But if you marry someone else, well... Marriage is probably going to be hard, and marriage might be impossible. And so that's oftentimes what we've been taught. But over the last month, as, as I've been preparing and studying for the sermon, what I've found has really been messing with me. And I hope it messes with you a little bit this morning, too. I've realized that the question, what is God's will for my big decisions, isn't the right question to be asking at all. 
when we ask that question, what is God's will for my big decisions, the, the problem with it is, how do we hear from the Lord? How do we listen and how do we know definitively that that is actually God speaking to us? I do believe that God can speak audibly to us. I believe that he can give us visions. I believe he can send an angel or he can visit me himself. But he's done none of those things for me. And so we're left with, with trying to, to listen for God for these big life decisions in very misguided ways. And so there's three misguided ways that I want to talk about how we oftentimes try to listen from the Lord. And trust me, I've made decisions based on all of them, so I'm not throwing any stones this morning. The first misguided way that, that we oftentimes try to hear from God and for making our decisions is looking for signposts. And so this is where we, we pray and we ask God, send me a sign. And so, but I'm not sure that this necessarily is always the best way to actually hear God's word. I, I think that there's oftentimes places where, where we have coincidences that we then turn into the very voice of God. And I think that can be a dangerous thing. One silly example of this is that there was a woman and, and she, was, she was trying to decide whether or not she should go visit her father out in California because he was about to have a surgery. And so she's trying to decide this. So, so she, she kneels down and she prays and, and asks God, send me a sign of whether or not I'm supposed to go visit my, my father. And so she, she ends her prayer and looks up and, and there it is. Her alarm clock reads 747. 747 is an airplane. And so, so she takes this as God telling her that she should get on an airplane and go visit her father out in California. Now, is this actually God speaking to her or did she just start praying at 745? I would have been more impressed if her alarm clock said 777 or 787 or if it said, go visit your father in California. So I'm not sure always asking for a sign is the best way to hear from God. Not that he can't give us a sign, but oftentimes we turn coincidences and we turn it into this is what God told me. And now the second misguided way that we try to listen for God's will for our big decisions is we play Bible roulette. And now for those of you who haven't played for Bible roulette, it's where once again you pray and ask God for, for his will for your big decision, and then you sit down, you lay your Bible in front of you, you randomly open it, you put your finger down, and that verse is God's will for your specific decision. And once again, I don't think this is necessarily the best way to hear from God. So this man, he's, he's trying to decide which job offer to accept. And so he decides that he'll play Bible roulette. He prays and asks God, reveal your will of, of which job should I accept? And so the man sits down and he prays and asks God and he randomly flips open his Bible and he puts his finger down. And he finds himself in Matthew chapter 27 where it says, then he, Judas, went and hung himself. Well, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't what he was looking for. And so he decides, well, I should probably play again. So once again, he, he sits down and, and randomly opens his Bible and puts his finger down and, 
And he's in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, go and do likewise. Greatly disturbed, the man decides that the third time has got to be the charm. And so he decides to play one last time. And, and so the man sits down once again, opens his Bible randomly, puts his finger down, and finds himself in John chapter 2, where it says, go and do whatever he tells you. Oftentimes, when we play Bible roulette, it just is confusing because the verse has nothing to do with what our decision actually is. But it can lead to disastrous results if we take it as God's very word for our specific circumstances. So the first two misguided ways that we try to listen for God's will is we look for signposts and then we also play Bible roulette. But this third way that we misguidedly try to listen for God's will is probably the most common, and that is we, we wait for a sense of peace. Now, I'm not saying that we should ignore a sense of peace, but once again, I'm not sure that we can, we can say definitively that a sense of peace is God speaking directly to us. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was to be arrested, was not feeling a whole lot of peace about what was to happen. Even though he was directly doing what he came to the earth to do. Now I do think a sense of peace can be our intuition, our subconscious letting us know that, that we are comfortable making a decision even if we aren't able to articulate why we're comfortable with that decision. And if we lack that sense of peace, maybe it's our intuition saying that we're uncomfortable with that decision and we need to do a little more research if we have the time. So I don't think we should ignore a sense of peace, but nor do I think that we can use it as the very word of God for our situations. Haddon Robinson, who was the previous Denver Seminary president, and he wrote this in his book, Decision Making by the Book. We are shocked when we turn to the Bible and discover that asking the question, how do we know the will of God for life's tough decisions? It isn't a biblical question. God does not encourage us to ask the question, and even more significantly, God gives us no answer. The Bible's silence almost shouts at us. The question we should ask is no longer, what is God's will? Instead, the question is, how do I make good decisions? If we change the question, we change the direction of the answer. To ask the question, how do I know God's will, makes us passive. But to ask the question, how do I make good decisions, makes us active. It shifts the responsibility of decision-making from God to us. God has given us the freedom to make good decisions, and we're responsible for them. And so we shift from asking this question of, what is God's will for my big decisions, to how do I make good and wise decisions? And that is a question that the Bible answers. And so for the rest of this morning, I want to talk about the six steps that the Bible talks about of making good and wise decisions. The first step to making wise decisions is to submit to God's moral will. 
Proverbs says in Proverbs 11, 1 to 4, the Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And then Proverbs 12.5 says, The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. In Proverbs 21, 2, and 3 says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. While God may not reveal a specific will for each one of our decisions, God has given us guardrails of where we're supposed to make our decisions within. Through God's law and through his commands in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, he has revealed to us what is right and what is righteous and what is wrong and what is evil. I think it was interesting that in Proverbs 21, 2, that, that it, it kind of says that... Um, that oftentimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that what we are doing is right or at least or at least acceptable but it isn't you and I that gets to judge the righteousness of our decisions at the end of our life god is kidner derek kidner in his commentary on the book of proverbs says To be sure, Proverbs is concerned to point out that what is right and what pays may travel long distances together. But it leaves us in no doubt which we are to follow when their paths diverge. It is at once clear that justice, not success, is our proper concern. Now, if we're being honest... There are times in our life where we think that God's moral will is just a great big cosmic killjoy. That God is trying to keep us from from something good. But God, the creator of the universe and the architect of each and every one of us, did not give us his moral will in order to stymie us. God gave us his moral will in order for us to flourish and to have life. God gave us his moral will, and it's, it's like an instruction manual for us. And Larry says this very often, that, that, that God says, here, do this and help yourself, and don't do this, and don't hurt yourself. And so God isn't trying to kill our joy. God is trying to encourage us to live life maximally through his moral will. But in order to know God's moral will, we need to know God's word. And so we need to be people that are mighty in God's word, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. We need to read scripture. We need to give our quiet times due diligence. And that oftentimes can be difficult, but it is worthwhile. Now, there are two ways that oftentimes we try to avoid submitting to God's moral will. And the first way that we try to avoid submitting to God's moral will is that we 
that we bring our preconceived notions of what is right and wrong and, and we force it upon the Bible. There were many people back in, back in the day that, that tried to defend the chattel slavery of the South from the Bible. They, they saw Africans as being subhuman and not deserving of any of the dignity or respect that comes with being made in the image of God. But God says that every single person is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and respect and freedom. And so they forced their understanding of what was right and what was wrong and forced it on the Bible. The second way that oftentimes we try to avoid submitting to God's moral will is we act like Thomas Jefferson who just took a pair of scissors and cut out whatever parts of the Bible he didn't like or offended him. It's true, he, he truly did this. Um, and so one of the ways that we do this today is, is oftentimes today we are offended by the biblical ethic of sexuality. And so we just pretend that it isn't there, but it is. Now, I do want to encourage you that, that if you're wrestling with an issue, it's okay to wrestle with what actually is God's moral will. And what are the things that, that we've created traditions around and as, as evangelical Christians, and, and we've placed that too highly. And so it's okay to wrestle with what actually is God's moral will. What does he actually command us? And what does he not have commands about? But in the end, we must submit to God's moral will. That's the first step of making wise decisions. Now, the second step of making wise decisions is to evaluate whether your decision is motivated by love. Jesus in Matthew 5:44 says, "Love your enemies." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The great and brilliant philosopher Immanuel Kant heard Jesus' words and he scoffed at them. You can't command love. And Kant was right if Jesus was talking about an emotional love. But Jesus isn't talking about warm, fuzzy feelings here. Jesus is talking about a love that, that is an act of the will. That when we come into contact with other people, whether it's our friends and our family and the people that it's easy to be around or the people that we have a hard time being around, those people that, that it seems like are always out to get us, that we are to seek their best interest. That we as Christians are no longer called to just look at the bottom line of a decision, but that we are called to try to bring the other person's best interest to bear. This is foolishness to our culture. Our culture says that we're always to put ourselves first, me first, no matter the cost to anyone else. But one of the radical calls of Christianity is Philippians 2, 4, which says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Culture says that the wise business owner is to squeeze every last ounce of profit 
from their company. They're to raise their, their prices as high as they can on their products and, and they're to pay their employees as little as possible so that that way they can go away with as much money as possible. Me first. But the Christian business owner is called to love and to serve both those people that they're doing business with, but also their employees. And so as a Christian business owner, are you selling good products at fair prices? And are you paying your employees a loving wage? Our decisions are to be motivated by love. Are we seeking other people's best interest? So the first step is to submit to God's moral will. The second step is, is our decision motivated by love? And the third step is focus on your strengths and gifts. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, has this to say. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. Paul continues on and he encourages people to use your gifts. Paul doesn't encourage people to long after other people's gifts, but he encourages you, use your own gifts. We, as a culture, are so often consumed with trying to fix our deficiencies instead of maximizing our strengths. Tom Rath from Gallup, Gallup Polls in, in the book Strength Finders 2.0 has this to say, we have discovered that people have several times more potential for growth when they invest energy in developing their strengths instead of correcting their deficiencies. So say you have two job offers on the table, and, and at first they, they seem to be fairly similar. They're, they're going to pay roughly the same amount, and they're the same drive distance away from your home. But what if, when you're considering which job option to take, what if you looked at your strengths and how they line up with the job description of each of the jobs that they have you going for? And so one, one of your strengths might be that, that you are someone that is incredible at analyzing data and then offering concrete solutions off of where that data leads. And so the first job offers, that, that would be what they would have you doing all day long every day. But the second job offer, they would have you be doing something completely different. It would be wise to take the job that lines up with your strengths Talk to other people and ask them where they see your strengths. Take personality assessments such as the DISC assessment or strength finders and start to learn about your own strengths. And so when you're coming to a decision, maximize and leverage your strengths instead of your weaknesses. The fourth step to making wise decisions is consider the circumstances. Now, oftentimes we elevate this too highly. We as Christians can often conflate our current circumstances with the will of God. And now I'm not saying that God isn't up to something in our lives, but, but I think oftentimes we don't necessarily understand what God is up to. 
when we're in the midst of life's circumstances. There are times that we can look back on our life and say, I think God was up to this back then. But oftentimes in the midst of of everyday life, it's hard to know what God is up to. Job's friends in the book of Job looked at, at Job's terrible circumstances and his suffering, and they said, well, you must have done something wrong, so you need to go repent. You need to ask God for forgiveness. But that wasn't what God was up to at all in Job's life. But God never revealed to Job or Job's friends what God was up to in the midst of Job's circumstances. Haddon Robinson has this to say about circumstances. Circumstances are simply factors that bring us to the point of decision. They often outline the decision that must be made. But circumstances in themselves are not necessarily signs of God's guidance. And so we may see open doors, but an open door doesn't necessarily mean that it's a door that you should step through. An open door is just one of hopefully several options that you can choose from. And so you need to decide wisely. And so as you become better at considering your circumstances, hopefully you'll begin to see more options and maybe hopefully better options to your decision when you become better at considering the circumstances. The fifth step to making wise decisions is to listen to wise counsel. Proverbs has this to say. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. In Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Wise people don't assume that they know everything. Wise people, they, they humbly admit that they don't know everything and so that they need to go and ask other wise people for advice. But unfortunately for the fool, they think they know everything, and so they plow forward and ignore any advice that could have saved them a tremendous amount of trouble in the long run. Now, there are three kinds of wise counsel that might be good to listen to. The first is biblically and theologically minded counsel. And this is counsel that will help you wrestle with whether or not your decisions that you're making actually are submitting to God's moral will. But more than that, they can also talk to you of of what does God's word have to say about your decision and how can that be helpful. And now if you're looking for someone that is biblically and theologically minded counsel, go talk to your small group leader or go talk to a staff member here at Waterstone. And even if they aren't necessarily able to tell you, they may be able to point you in the right direction towards someone who can. And the second good kind of counsel is experienced counsel. It is always helpful to find someone who has a lot of good life experience and listen to them and ask them for their advice. Over the last several years, my wife Jill and I, we've, we've been a part of the Emmaus 55 plus class during the second service. 
And it's been an incredible experience because we've been surrounded by people with great life experience. And so even though I'm one of the teachers of the class, I, I think I'm the person that's learned the most in the class by being around the people in Emmaus. And not only is it good to find people with general life experience, it's, it's good to find people with, with specific experience related to the decision you're making. Some of you might have parents that are starting to get a little bit older, and you're wondering, is it safe for them to be living alone? And so you're struggling with what to do about that situation. It's, it's a very difficult situation. And, and so it might be wise to go talk to someone else who's gone through that process first and ask them, what are the pitfalls that I should avoid and what are some tips that you would have for me in making this decision? The third kind of wise counselor you should seek out is the best available. Who are the experts in the field, in the realm of the decision you're making. You probably shouldn't base your medical or how to file your taxes decisions based on my advice. You just shouldn't. You should go ask the relevant professionals. And especially with decisions related to finances, medical, or psychologically, it's very important to go and talk to those people that are the experts in the field. So the first six steps to making wise decisions is to submit to God's moral will. Is your decision motivated by love? You're to focus on your strengths, you're to consider your circumstances, and you're to listen to wise counsel. But the sixth and final step, this is, this is a very important step. It's to submit to God's sovereign will. Proverbs has this to say about God's sovereign will. In their hearts, human plan, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Do we? There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. And so we do, as humans, we do have free will and our choices do matter. But God is completely sovereign, which means that God is in complete control of the entire universe. Nothing happens without the Lord's permission. Now, we oftentimes struggle with, with how does our free will interact with God's sovereignty. But that's a whole other sermon for a whole other morning. Otherwise, we'd be here for a lot longer. Now, we need to humbly admit that, that as we're making our plans, that God may have other plans in mind. And James 4 says, that instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And so as we're making plans, we, we need to admit that, that our plans aren't definite. They're not a sure thing. There is no sure thing in this world. 
Only God's plans and only God's decisions are sure things. And that can oftentimes be, be hard to humble ourselves and admit that, that only God is the one in control. But there is a lot of freedom and hope in knowing that God is sovereign. We ultimately are not the captains of our own destiny. Our lives are in much better hands than our own. They're in God's hands. Now, we've all made unwise decisions in our life. And some of those unwise decisions haven't necessarily had huge consequences for our lives. But some of those unwise decisions, they've had terrible consequences. It's felt like earthquakes rumbling through our lives. Our marriages are struggling. Our family is being torn apart. I no longer have the job that I once had. My finances are in ruin. Our unwise decisions have had terrible consequences on our lives. But God is a good and loving Father who is gracious and merciful. One of my favorite titles for Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Do you know that God is with you even in the midst of the terrible circumstances and the terrible repercussions of the decisions you've made? God is with you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Our God is a God of redemption and restoration. God is redeeming you and he's redeeming your unwise decisions. And God is not redeeming and restoring robots, but he is redeeming and restoring people that are made in his own image. So God is calling you back to himself. He's calling you to be a person that has free will. And so going forward, make wise decisions. Submit to God's moral will. Make your decisions motivated by love. Focus on your strengths and your gifts. Consider your circumstances. Listen to wise counsel. And then submit and rest in God's sovereignty. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come here and worship you. And Father, I pray that we would be a people of wise decisions. I pray that, that we would seek your wisdom. I pray that we would, would be people that, that are like Solomon, who ask for wisdom and, and we make righteous and just choices. And so Father, I pray that, that we would be known as people that make wise decisions. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.